We are parents, we are doctors, we are first responders, teachers, and concerned citizens who have found ourselves at a crossroads. We see our freedoms being stripped away and we can no longer stay silent. We are millions strong, united in a thundering voice and imperative mission that cannot and will not be ignored. We are standing up for the basic human right to raise our own children, earn a living, and make our own medical decisions without the tyrannical overreach that has been forced upon us here in California, across the country, and around the world. We are here to amplify the voices, moving the needle, bringing forth truth, and provide education and resources with tangible tools and expert insights. We are The Unity Project, and this is our podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the Freedom Gateway from Foundations of Freedom. The Freedom Gateway is a truly secure and private platform for collaboration and communication. It's uncancelable. While bringing together mission-driven organizations, freedom-loving individuals, activists, and engaged citizens across the globe. Here at the Unity Project, we use the Freedom Gateway to escape big tech censorship, leverage secure communications, and document sharing, and so much more. To learn more about the Freedom Gateway and its myriad of safe and secure features to connect, go to theunityproject.org slash FOF. Well, we are two minutes after the hour. As, as always, I think we will start to have a lot of people um, joining, but let's go ahead and get this kicked off just uh, so we can make sure that we have enough time to talk about this. This particular um, Twitter Spaces event, I'm, I've been very excited about. I know, Dr. Malone, this is going to be a topic that you have a lot of passion around and experience with. And um, so let's kick it off by introducing Jason. Why don't you introduce yourself, a um, little bit about your background, and then let's dive into what you're doing. And it'll just be conversational in format as always. For those of you who don't, that are on this Twitter spaces, who don't know me, my name is Laura Sextro. I'm the CEO of the Unity Project. We are an organization that was founded about a year and a half ago now um, to, and I can't believe it's been that long, although it feels like it's been five years. <laughs> Dr. Robert Malone is our chief medical officer, and we were founded to fight uh, specifically and very myopically the vaccine mandates as it relates to children. Our mission has now grown, and we're addressing all issues as it relates to medical freedom and parental rights. And under that very broad umbrella, there's a lot to talk about. And censorship, I think, is, is squarely in the center of uh, the tool that's been used to perpetrate a lot of crimes against uh the human population. So with that, Jason, I'm going to introduce yourself. Thank you, Laura. Um, and thank you for having me on. Actually, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but Susan Prager is actually in the room. Uh, Susan Prager is the one that introduced Laura and I uh, about a week ago. And uh, <laughs> Laura, you and I just clicked. Um, and so my background, uh, I was involved. Uh, I had built a business on Facebook uh, at peak, I had about 38 million fans. And, um, you know, this was all throughout 2010, all the way through about 2016. And they basically destroyed my business. Um, it was the, the earlier versions of censorship wasn't based on medical information. It wasn't based on religion or ideology or any of that stuff. It was based on wiping out competition. Uh, and we caught them. We caught them red-handed in, in 2016. And in 2018, I sued Facebook, and I took the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And, of course, we had to go through the Ninth Circuit Court, which was a joke. Um, they didn't answer anything we, we had you know, really brought up. Um, they just uh, 
you know, use the same old precedent, basically said they can do whatever they want, which doesn't actually track what the law says. So we went all the way to the Supreme Court, and uh, I never saw a single judge, uh, was never give, granted leave to amend. So we went back. Um, there was another case that came up, Enigma, that, that con uh, conflicted with our case. So we went back through the whole system again. So we are now uh, actually on our second run to the Supreme Court against Facebook. We've narrowed the Section 230 argument down where it is essentially irrefutable. We, we know how to beat it. Um, the question is whether or not the, the courts will actually do it. So uh, as of late, we uh, just filed a petition for writ of certiorari about a month and a half ago. Um, actually, a, a quick announcement. Yesterday was the deadline for Facebook to file. Uh, they did not file a response. So it is only on our petition right now. Um, we didn't expect them to file because there's really no way to argue it. And um, so now what I'm, I'm actually starting to work with other groups and start to basically impart my knowledge um, and relate what everybody wants to go after, which is a censorship issue, relate it back to the way that Section 230 is supposed to apply. Um, because there are legal pathways. It's just they haven't been able to get through the courts yet because the courts are essentially just blocking all information. So that's my expertise is in the Section 230 lit litigation world. And uh, thanks. Uh, hopefully I can uh, educate some people today on how it really works. Fantastic. Um, why don't we let's talk about Section 230 and the importance of that and how um, it was interpreted and in, in, in your journey. And Robert, feel free to jump in again. I know this is something that you're passionate about. You've spoken about this. Um, so go ahead, Jason, let's talk about section 230 and, and how you got here. And like I said, Robert, feel free to jump in. Yeah. Yeah. The hope is, is that people, um, gain some knowledge as to, cause everybody, everybody knows something's wrong, right? This is just not the way that things were supposed to be. The government, you know, is working in this private government partnership situation. Um, but the reason it is so messed up is because, I mean, for the past at least five years, they have paid people to go out and confuse people. Um, they have people that will come on. If you post, uh, you know, Section 230, big tech, censorship, something like that, they would attack you. I'm sure many of you on Twitter here have been attacked, you know, that you're, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, it's a First Amendment right, blah, blah, blah. And you hear all these crazy things. Well, it's really not that complicated. When it all comes down to it, what I've done over the past five years of litigation is I figured out how to articulate this in a very simple manner. So all we have to do is just walk through it. And once you understand it, you realize they don't have this protection. It's not in the text of the law. Um, there was a recent case, Gonzalez versus Google, that uh, considered Section 230. And it's not even a partisan issue. It was actually, uh, uh, what is her name, uh, Kenzie Jackson, who... Um, said that the, it doesn't track the text of the law. And they're right. It doesn't. The, the law doesn't say what they're saying it does. But it doesn't seem like the Ninth Circuit is anywhere near inclined to do anything about it because the reality is is that they fix this two and a half decades where the precedent gets overturned. It's going to be a mess that they have to right. clean up. Well, it doesn't seem as though um, any, at least in California, uh, it doesn't seem like anyone in the judicial system is ruling in concert with the with the with the spirit and rule of law. Um, rather, ruling based on ideology and emotion, right? I mean, 
not that this has to do with Section 230, but just as an example, we were seeing thousands of religious belief exemptions being denied over the course of the last two and a half years. It's a total constitutional issue, not only in the state of California, but also the federal constitution. And it seems like that same reaction is happening here as it relates to your case. It, that's exactly right, is, is they have effectively imparted their own bias as a essentially they're legislating from the bench. They're deciding what the law is rather than saying what the law is. Their, their, their job in the judiciary, you know, given the, the correct separation of powers, is essentially to just impart the law the way it is written. If, it, if it's ambiguous, then they can get into the intent of Congress, and they keep talking about the intent of the legislature in, in regards to Section 230. You don't need to. The language is not ambiguous. It, it says what it says, and we figured out where the mistake was made, uh, and I'll get into that in a little bit. But, but here's the problem. In, if you think about big tech, they are all situated, and when I say all, I'm saying the, the vast majority of them are West Coast. Silicon Valley, et cetera. So they keep going to the same court. I think 98 or 99% of tech cases all go through the same court. And if that court is not inclined to correct its own mistakes, we're never going to see a change. But that's changed recently. And, and of course, there, and I'm sure everybody will be in here probably never even heard of these cases because they don't want it out of the media because Main, you know, legacy media is is in bed with big tech. They, it's why big uh, big tech called them trusted sources because they got a deal going on, right? They're all, and of course, the government's in this mess. So they don't want. That's why you don't ever hear about me because what I have is the correct fix for this. It's it's right in the text. You can prove it. It's it's really not that complicated. Well, here's where it gets interesting. There's a case. Enigma versus Mauerbytes, and that touched on, on the topic, and we'll talk about it later, which is called the Good Samaritan General Provision of the Statute. And if you haven't heard those words, Good Samaritan, well, you're going to like to hear those because, of course, if you think about any lawsuit that comes through on a tech basis, if the first question was, did they act as a Good Samaritan in the interest of others or in the interest of the public? If that's the first question, imagine what that relates to in everything – with regards to religion, medical, everything. It's not in the interest of the public the way they're acting. That's the first thing. That was Enigma versus Mauerbytes. Now, that one they kind of squashed because that was actually still a Ninth Circuit Court. But right before we went for petitions uh, to Supreme Court, we had kind of a miracle happen. Uh, there was another case called Henderson versus Public Data in the Fourth Circuit Court. That case... Um, they revisited a, a case called Zoran versus America Online. That was the first case that was ever considered uh, in terms of Section 230 once it was written, right? And that case got just absolutely bastardized. It got all messed up, like whisper down the lane, and the precedent that came out of it just wasn't what it was originally. It wasn't what the statute says. Well, sure enough, the, the Zoran case was the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit went back to it and pulled it all apart. They actually they I, uh, articulated that 230C1 uh, is not protection to do anything these companies want to do online. And what it did was create something called a circuit court conflict. Essentially, now the Ninth Circuit and Fourth Circuit don't agree anymore. Well, the only court that can fix that is the United States Supreme Court, which means that just as we were about to go into the Supreme Court, we have conflicting decisions between two different circuits, and they're the only court that can fix it. They're kind of inclined to do it. It's great news. So 
fast forward. Actually, where do you want me to go with it? Because, I mean, we can start tying this together. I can start walking yeah. everybody through the law. It, it all depends on what everybody wants to know. Well, I think, I think um, Robert, were you trying to jump in? I was just going to say, I would love to be tutored on the law as he sees it. Yeah, yeah I was going to oh. say, I think let, let's talk about the law and let's talk about why this is something that can be very powerful. And let's do it in, in to the extent that we can in layman's terms. Um, and, and then as we go through this, I would love for you to contrast because I'm sure people have seen this all over social media. I know, um, DC Drano, there's also similar lawsuits, uh, or at least they're presenting them to be similar. And I know you and I both know that they're not. Um, so let's talk about contrasting that against some of the other current lawsuits that are happening, um, today that, uh, have just been, we've, we've learned about on social media. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So let's go back to the to the origins and roots of why this law even occurred, right? Like, why did they even write it in the first place? Well, what happened was there's this company called Stratton Oakmont, and you know, and, and there's all the and just so you all understand, there are a lot of academics that come out there and they talk about this stuff, and they absolutely mess this up. The reason they say is, oh, well, they wanted to protect big tech companies. Actually, no. The original intent of this law. In Stratton Oakmont, what happened was is that they held themselves out to be a family-friendly website. And what they did was is that they looked at content and they removed anything that could be potentially harmful to children. Okay? Now, the problem with that was is that when they did that, it made them accountable for all of the rest of the content they missed because they became a publisher. Right? And I'm sure everybody hears, oh, they can't be a publisher. Well, I'm going to dispel all those myths today. So what happens is is that Congress said, well, we don't want them to be held accountable for anything that they weren't involved in, and but we do want to incentivize them to be able to take down specifically harmful content to protect children. The intent was literally to protect kids. It had nothing to do with protecting the website. It really had to do with, hey, we want to be able to encourage these companies to be able to protect our children from harmful content. They brought out something called the Big Blue Book of Smut, which was actually printed stuff from the Internet. And they were trying to essentially say, this stuff's bad. Can you take it down? Well, so what did they do? Well, they come in and they write Section 230 in 1996, the Communications Decency Act. It was designed to essentially encourage decency, protecting kids. Okay, well, the idea was this. They were basically saying that if they do a good job, if they're good guys acting in good faith to restrict some materials that are considered otherwise objectionable and they do that in good faith, they cannot be held liable for their actions because they're acting as a publisher. Right. They're not acting as a distributor anymore. And in the circumstance that they don't uh take down content, meaning they, they're not involved in that content, because, of course, who puts the stuff, the content on these sites? They don't do it. We do, right? So think of it, and, and this is the best way to explain it, because everybody talks about newsstands. I'm going to give you the best way to understand Section 230. Imagine it's a bookstore where the bookstore doesn't order the books. It acts more like a library, where we, the publishers, the content providers, come in with our book. And we put it on a shelf. And the only thing that the library or bookstore really does is aggregates it based on genre. They're not reading the book. They don't know what's in the book. And they can't be held accountable for what's in the book because they can't be treated as the person who put it on the shelf. Okay? 
You follow me so far? Now, what happens, for example, if the library, or let's just call it a library. It's the easiest way to do it. What happens if the library actually pulls the book down and reads it? And they consider that content. Now they've looked at it. And what if that content just happens to be child pornography? But it's in a, a section for battleships, okay? Well, if that bookstore, or excuse me, the library, whichever, puts that book back on the shelf, they've knowingly put that content back, right? They, quote, allowed it. So there's a very big difference between unknowingly hosting something, meaning they never considered that content at all, like failed to remove it, and knowingly allowed it, which means they considered it and put it back. Those distinctions are, are seem subtle, but they're very critical. Uh, and, and this all come together in a minute. So if they can put that content back after they considered it, well, now all of a sudden they can actually advance whatever content they want by considering all content, right? And then what they can do is they could come up and they could decide, well, we, we want this child pornography here, so we're going to take down everything else in the section so that it's just the child pornography. Well, the problem with that is, is that most people have never even heard of this, but Section 502, but you never heard that word before or that section before, same act, Communications Decency Act, Section 502, makes it a crime to knowingly, uh, or knowingly provide child pornography. Knowingly. See, there's your key point. Once they consider that content, that content is their liability. Why? Because they've considered it. And if they were to consider and allow child pornography, that would conflict with Section 502. So we know that Section 230 can't be to consider and allow content because that would include a conflict, which, which is what's called an irreconcilable statutory conflict, with Section 502. Now, this sounds super technical. But this is a problem. A, a, a law can't be contradictory. It can't be irreconcilable like that. So let's go back to what the law says and see how if we can figure out, and this is how we figured out how to fix it. So Section 230C1, which is the first section which says that, you know, everybody says, oh, it allows them to, to allow content or do whatever they want. They can't be treated as a publisher. What if I told you that's wrong? They can be treated as a publisher. They can't be treated as the publisher. It's very subtle, but it is critical because it, it all comes down to the English language. The statute says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. It does not say a publisher. It says the publisher. Okay. James Madison once argued in the Federalist Papers that the most important word in the right to free speech is the word the, because the denotes that the right preexisted. It was already there. So it, it essentially preexisted any potential abridgment. Well, same thing happens here. The publisher preexists. It's somebody we already know in the story. So the publisher has to pre precede the provider or user. Basic English language, right? The word the is called a definitive article. We know who the publisher is. Well, who's the publisher? It's another information content provider, meaning it has to be somebody else, anybody else other than the provider or user. That's critical because if you convert it to a publisher, which 
every court has done literally since day one, just using the word interchangeably. Well, now a publisher can be any publisher. It can include the provider user. And sure enough, just so you all know that, I mean, how important this is, my case, I sued Facebook for Facebook's own actions, not my actions. I wasn't treating them as the publisher of my content because I am the publisher of my content. The courts unilaterally said, well, you can't treat them as a publisher of your content dismissed. See the problem? Mm -hmm. Had they actually read it and applied it correctly, <clears throat> they would just, they all they have to do is look at who is the publisher in my entire case. That was me, not them. I wasn't treating them as me, clearly. So the reason that we know we're narrowing the field here is because the Department of Justice, the Ted Cruz and about 16 other members of Congress, and uh, Texas, uh, led by uh, Attorney General Ken Paxson and several other uh, attorney generals, wrote amicus in Gonzalez versus Google. And Ted Cruz articulated it the absolute best. He said that 230C1. Jason, Jason yeah. can you um, explain what is amicus for people? Oh. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Stop me if I get a little too technical because no, I can this always back up. So an amicus is essentially a friendly brief. Somebody comes in and they says, and they say to the courts, okay, this Gonzalez versus Google thing's going on. Here's how we think Section 230 works. And then they file that with the Supreme Court, and that's what happened in Gonzalez. And I had a weird circumstance in terms of timing where the amicus for Gonzalez came out before my petition was even finished. So I was actually in a weird situation where I could cite amicus in a case that wasn't even mine that was currently in the Supreme Court. Okay? And so in there, Ted Cruz's group, he, they nailed it. They absolutely nailed it. And, they, they, and um, uh, very simply, he said, 230C1 does not protect any conduct at all. Remember the, the example I was giving you about the library and the bookstore or the bookstore? They're not considering the content. It's when they fail to remove something because they're not involved in it. They can't be treated as the one who did take action. Thus, if, the con if there's no conduct protected, right? Because as he said, it protects no conduct at all. Well, that my case should have beaten dismissal because I was suing for Facebook's conduct, not mine. I wasn't treating them as someone else. I was treating them as them. Well, here we go again. It's, it's just... The Ninth Circuit would not make that easy distinction, no matter what we said, no matter how we said it. I mean, we are we rearticulated it eight to ten times. They never even addressed it. Why do you think that is? I'll leave that for everybody to, to ponder on. So essentially, that's where this big problem began. It, it's so subtle, nobody realized it, and the only reason I caught it is because I was watching Judge Napolitano and he had asked that question to his class and he and he said, you know, about James Madison uh, and the Federalists and all of a sudden it clicked in my head. That's the publisher. And I ran back to my computer and sure enough, the three-part test that they use to consider Section 230C1 immunity, line two says, seeks to treat as a publisher or a speaker. It's not what the statute says. The, the text is wrong. Now that's huge. Because if it's read the way that they're saying it's read, and this is legitimately what they've said, 
is 230C1 says you can't be treated as a publisher when you are a publisher, meaning you can't be treated as yourself. You can't be held accountable for any of your own publishing conduct at all. There's no measure of motive, which is effectively sovereignty, right? It's super immunity. You can do anything you want. If there, if the tech, if, uh, excuse me, if um, Ted Cruz and the DOJ and Texas and myself are right, 230C1 protects no conduct at all, which means that they can't do any publishing at all. Imagine the difference between the application of Section 230. If the courts are currently applying it, they can do anything they want with no measure of motive, and they flip it and do it correctly, and they can't do anything. It's literally 180 degrees difference. That's what we put in front of the Supreme Court is a simple question. Does 230C1 protect any conduct at all? That decision alone will, will determine the future of the Internet. So, Jason, let's talk about the impact um, that this could potentially have on censorship and what we've seen um, over the last, I'm going to say really over the last five years. I, I don't think it's just boiled down to the last two years or two, you know, three years because of COVID. So let's talk about what, what, how this could potentially impact and change the trajectory of what we've seen in this country. And because knowing that censorship is probably the biggest mechanism that we've, we've seen used to um, change what, you know, uh, people's ability to ingest information, correct information, um, express themselves freely, uh, everything under the umbrella of that. Sure, sure. So it actually, to, to explain this, I think that it, it would be best if I start to explain just the other portions of Section 230 so that everybody will see how they work as a, congru uh, as a congruent whole, okay? okay. So... It's just like an outline for those that aren't following. When I keep saying 230C1, it, it, there's a section 230C, and then C1 falls under that, C2 falls under that, and then there's C2A and C2B, okay? Well, most people have never heard 230C at all, and they don't want you to hear it because it tells you what the protection is for. It says protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive materials, so what did, what did Congress want done? They wanted block, you to block and screen offensive materials. In return, they get protection. But then there's these pesky words called Good Samaritan. <clears throat> and in the law itself, they are in quotes. And I, ironically, that's how I started to pull this thing apart because it bugged me why those quotes were there. Like, why are there quotes on these two words? Well, there's a reason. And it's huge. Absolutely off the charts huge. Now, in Enigma, they called it a general provision, right? It's got a formal name. It's what's called an articulated, intelligible principle. Do you know when they use uh, – do you know when the Congress actually writes something with an articulated, intelligible principle? They put it in quotes to articulate it. The reason that they do it is when there's an administrative law that delegates regulatory authority. Well, that's exactly what Section 230 does. It gives the authority to these private entities to essentially regulate the um, affairs of the unwilling, us, users, right, under the authority of government, okay? So the threshold question for any case should be whether or not they, act, whether or not they acted as a good Samaritan, right? right. And, and a good Samaritan may or may not be incredibly you know it's it's somewhat ambiguous but at the same time what's not ambiguous is, is that it has to be for the good of others 
not for the good of the site, not what the site wants, but for the interests of the public. Well, sure enough, any administrative law that's written by Congress has to be in the interest of the public. So as what I'm saying here is, is that start considering all of the reasons that you've been censored, all of you in this group, all of the reasoning. And, and I was going to say somebody has their mic open, so it's it's bleeding over sound. No. Sorry, that might be me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mute myself. So think about like what has happened to you, right? Or what you've been censored for. Do you think that whatever that was, was in the interest of the public and was that tech company, whoever did it, acting as a good Samaritan? That should be the threshold question for any liability litigation whatsoever. Did they act for their own interest? If they did, they're not a good Samaritan. End of story. Game over, you go to court on yeah, the merits. Okay, so can I jump in on this? Sure. Um, uh, uh, devil's advocate. The tech companies were acting on behalf of uh, public health and the public interest, in theory, by uh, with actively withholding information which would cause vaccine hesitancy. That's their position. Okay. And so, you, what do you? I, okay. I, 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 I speculate that what you're doing is painting us into a corner because, you know, not of your making, but uh, I suspect that what we're going to find is the um, counter argument from tech is that they were acting um, with guidance from the CDC on behalf of public health. And the assumption is that the government was acting in good faith to protect uh, the public interest as a good Samaritan uh, by protecting all of us from uh, information which could otherwise cause harm. That's absolutely the argument they're making. They're making the same argument about um, Silicon Valley Bank, that we all need to be protected from the information about uh, what is actually going on in the banking industry so that we don't have a run on the bank which would ca crash the economy and harm the general interest. And so it's a good Samaritan argument, I suspect, that they're going to make. That, uh, and it's essentially the argument that uh, Barack Obama made, if you'll recall, repeatedly, going back many years, that it's necessary to protect democracy, that censorship is necessary to protect democracy. That is absolutely the argument that he's making. I don't think it's valid because the thesis is um, completely contrary to the First Amendment. But that's that's the position that's being taken is that censorship is necessary to protect the public interest. Over. OK. Yeah. I mean, Jason, I want to get your response to that. And I agree yep. that it's totally invalid. Uh, absolutely. Because because when you have no transparency, uh, there's there's no way for accountability. There's no way to ensure that, in fact, the the people that are, quote unquote, censoring are doing it in the best interest of the, the public. And I mean, we could go down a hole. This is probably a whole nother. Uh, excuse me, as, as opposed to, to uh, the political interests of the current administration. Correct. Correct. OK, so I, I actually have no issues with being challenged. Because I've gotten so far through this, I can I can walk you through all of it. So let's just arbit let's just for argument's sake say that you're correct here, 
that it would be a discretionary decision on the part of the judge, and they made the argument that they acted in good faith as a good Samaritan when they restricted your content, right? So that's what we're working with right now, right? Yep. Okay. So would you say that if they restricted your content, they blocked and screened offensive materials? Uh, they would say that, not offensive materials, but but materials which could uh, damage the public health interest. Right. And, and by offensive, it means that they were acting as a good Samaritan in good faith to restrict, even if you were going to go to 230C2A's language, to say otherwise objectionable, and you consider it as completely subjective, that they can do anything they want in good faith uh, as a good Samaritan and you they could arguably say well they were acting as a good Samaritan and doing what they believed was the correct thing right so that's your argument that that already the judge has decided no they act as a good Samaritan right well let's go to step two there's a lot of steps to this so let's just say they've succeeded on good Samaritan but let's look at that first line again it says protection for good Samaritan blocking and screening of offensive materials there's three elements to it it's called a long title the three elements are, well, there's the word protection, right? That's the consideration. That's what they get. They're getting liability protection uh, when they do what? Block and screen offensive materials. Well, who wrote that? That would be the United States government, Congress. So everybody's talking about whether it's state action, whether it was a directive, whether it was a request. And whether or not they can be treated as state actors. Well, it's right in the, it's literally in the statute, the directive. They were asked to block and screen offensive materials by Congress. And in return, if they do it as a good Samaritan, they get protection. Not super complicated. So thus, if we work it backwards like a math problem, if they're seeking protection, they have to prove that they acted as a good Samaritan to do the directive of Congress. It is not a request. It is a directive. Now, if they do it, they get C2A protection. They get liability protection. That's why this thing is, if it gets sorted out, because they're blending C1 with C2 protections right now. But C2A is the only liability protection they get. That's why it says civil liability. C1 is treatment. It's not actually a protection at all. What it is, it prevents you from being treated as someone else. So... If you boil everything down again, right, just render it down to what its elements are. Well, C1 is that you can't be treated as someone else in a correct setting, right? We're trying to fix that. C2A is when they acted on behalf of Congress's directive voluntarily. They choose to do what, what, what the Congress asked them to do, right? Block and screen offensive materials. If they're seeking protection, they had to prove that they acted as a good Samaritan, in good faith, to do what Congress said. It's called a delegation of regulatory authority. It's a violation of the non-delegation doctrine. It's a violation of the major questions doctrine. These are all things that we brought up in our constitutional challenge. Yeah, yeah. so you're, you're running smack into the basis for uh, EPA versus West Virginia. Bingo. EPA, uh, OSHA, the... Um, Jakarski versus, uh, like, for example, yeah. Jarkeski so versus you're, SEC. Frame this, you frame this so that it's right dead center in the hottest topic going on right now in constitutional law at the Supreme Court. Correct. And in fact, actually, Jarkeski, which is a Fifth Circuit decision, which is one that we use as supplemental authority, because this was all occurring 
at the same time, we were coming up through the courts. Like all of this stuff was all cutting edge because nobody had ever really dealt with it. Jarkassi had an interesting thing to say, which is, and what we uh, uh, argued in the, the last stages of the Ninth Circuit was we said, look, because the district court had said that, oh, the general provision, remember the intelligible principle, only applies to Section 230C2, not C1. Well, that means that the general provision in 230C doesn't apply to the statute generally, which makes no sense. In fact, an intelligible principle has to apply to the entire statute. And what was interesting about Jarkesi is, is that it came back and it said, if it, does, if it lacks an intelligible principle, so if it has an intelligible principle, it has to apply to the entire statute. If it doesn't have an intelligible principle, it's unconstitutional because it's not executive power, it's legislative power. We had them in a catch-22. They dumped me on procedural, which was a complete lie, because they said, well, uh, they had made the decision in Enigma a uh, year and a half earlier, except there were five other conflicts that I was in there with that were not that untimely. And secondarily, that decision in Enigma left their jurisdiction, went to the Supreme Court, which means that that previous date is, is null. You, you have to go off of when it was finally settled law, and we, we advanced it 19 days later. So it's clear they don't want to fix this, but there are direct constitutional conflicts. And just so everybody's aware here, I have two cases. I have Fick versus Facebook in the United States Supreme Court right now, and that's addressing mostly the textual misinterpretations except for a Fifth Amendment challenge, which is to say that these companies are allowed to uh, restrict our life, liberty, or property. Obviously not our life, but my property and my liberties were, were denied by Facebook and that in and of itself is not unconstitutional, but if a regulatory statute allows them to take my property and I can't get a day in court, it's a denial of due process. They can take anything they want. It's what's called a regulatory illegal taking. So we're challenging that right now in the case against Facebook, but secondarily in the Washington DDC court, we have a constitutional challenge going on, which is amazing. You want, you want to talk about media problem. I stood on the Capitol steps with Congressman Gomer, announced it in a, in a public press conference, and every single media source buried the story. It is a full-blown constitutional challenge, straight-up declaratory action. Nobody even announced it. So we're, we're, we're cornering them. Yeah. Hey, I've got another question, if you can back up for a moment. When you were talking sure. about who's the publisher, your original set of arguments... Um, as I understood it, you were saying that um, the whether or not the content is objectionable uh, exists in a theoretical space. It could be objectionable, it could be unobjectionable, but until they examine it and then place it back in the digital library, uh, when they make that determination that it is either objectionable or not objectionable and they take an action, they then also become a publisher. Did I understand that correctly? That is correct. As soon as so, they take any action, 230C1 no longer applies. So what they've got is, you know, forgive me, I just, I can't get it out of my mind. You've got another Schrodinger's cat. The cat could be alive or dead in the box and you don't know until you observe it. The observation is what uh, decides the fate of the cat. Am I making sense? I understand your 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 idea here, but 
remember, this isn't about liability in 230C1. It's not liability protection. That was actually articulated by Ted Cruz as well. It is treatment. It has nothing to do about what a publisher does or what they are. It's about who they are. So in this circumstance of 230C1, it prevents them from being treated as someone else. It doesn't matter if the cat exists or doesn't exist. There's no liability because they're not involved. They're not being treated as someone else. As if you are, t if you're essentially suing for liability, you're already saying that they have considered it. And well, I mean, in the circumstance of allowing content, yes, you're going to have a hard time proving that they allowed it, that they considered it and allowed it. But that again goes back to that they can't be treated as the one who put it up there, right? So if for example, they knowingly, like, for example, I'll give you a good example where it wouldn't work like Schrodinger's cat. There was, um, I think it was Doe versus Twitter. There was a, a child who had done uh, child pornography, right, when they were, and it was a Snapchat thing. Somebody had recorded it and then posted it on Twitter. The parents went to Twitter and said, this is child, it was underage pornography. And Twitter didn't act upon that. They didn't take it down, but they were notified meaning they knowingly were hosting child pornography which would be a violation of section 502 of the same act so then it went up to the police the police contacted twitter they still did not act now they have clear notification right from law enforcement it took the homeland security to contact them and tell them to take it down because it was unlawful before they did in that time period they allowed 136,000 more views of that child pornography because of their own negligence. Now, this is what Gonzalez versus Google got into, which is if in recommending content or allowing content, are they responsible for the content or for the recommendation? Here, you're not holding them accountable for creating and publishing the content. You're holding them accountable for their contributory negligence because they considered and knowingly allowed it. As soon as they get involved in any conduct, they can be held accountable with the exception of what 230C2A provides. And then it comes down to a question of whether objection was considered subjectively or objectively. If it's objective, it's probably going to fit within constitutional sufficiency. But if it's subjective, it's just anything they want. Anything they want could include things that are not good Samaritan based. So essentially, there's always a pathway through, but it's a long way around. Does that so make sense? So where does this leave us? Are we, we talking about a, a Supreme Court decision on this, uh, this term, or what are you projecting? Um, if the Supreme Court... I don't know what they're going to do with Gonzalez, because I, I watched the whole three hour uh, of Gonzalez. Tam, uh, Tam that was essentially... It really, there wasn't much to it that they talked about 230. It was more about terrorist stuff. My fear uh, is with the Supreme Court is, is that if they're trying to come up with a carve out for domestic terrorism, we're all in trouble because they're trying to label anybody who stands up to the government as a domestic terrorist. But I will, I do have a lot of hope because one, the Department of Justice articulated a very simple, my case is an antitrust case. It has been since day one and 230C1 is how it was dismissed. That's wrong. It's just fundamentally wrong. Well, the Department of Justice articulated that antitrust cases are not protected by C1. It's what we've been saying since 2018. Nobody was listening to us. We've been trying to, I mean, we've had this articulated out for years. 
But now the 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 Department of Justice is on board. The, there's a turn, and and like I said, it's not partisan. And and this is a very good point that we brought a nonpartisan argument. It's just about money, but it has ripple effects to everything else: financial censorship, and then ideological, and then religious, and then political, and and medical. All of these other things have ramifications if we can sort out the text and apply it correctly. Well, the good news is is that they might, might. I mean, it sounded like some of the the justices. They were at least asking the right question, but the the defense or excuse me, the um, plaintiff's counsel was he just was terrible. He, he had no idea what he's doing. Bad examples. The Department of Justice articulated and even Blatt said that Henderson was correct, which was mind boggling because Henderson is correct. It, it's a direct conflict with the Ninth Circuit. Long and the short of it is, is that they might consider it there, but we've just handed them a petition for writ of certiorari that is not partisan. That is incredibly simple. If you, it's pinned in my uh, my profile. If you go up, it's it's right there. You can read it for yourself. It's not super complicated, and all we're asking the courts to do is stop interpreting what the the legislature says or thinks. Do what it says. Do what the language literally articulates, and we'll all be fine. In other words, to put this incredibly simply, the law is not broken. Section two thirty would work. All you need to do is apply it as it's written. That's it. There's your problem with the entire internet. All in a nutshell. It's crazy. So, Jason, there's there's some other legal proceedings that are happening. Um, I, I, I mentioned the D.C. Drano case. I know the Harmeet Dillon's firm is representing him, and they're talking about going to the Supreme Court. T- let's talk about the differences between um, that case and what, what you're um, hoping to bring to the Supreme Court. So this this is an interesting thing, and and I I want to start by saying because I know the space is recorded. This is not disparaging of any other case. I hope they win. I hope anybody wins. I don't care who it is that wins. Somebody's got to win this thing, right? It doesn't have to be me. That's fine. But there are some inherent problems with with the case. And I as I asked you earlier, I posed a very interesting question, and I would ask everybody here, and I'll give you a second to think about right. this. If the government asks right just voluntarily asks and says can you take this person's content down because we don't agree with it that's they're they're literally claiming that that's not a directive that is just simply uh, a request and the site's just spontaneously decided to go with it right well as i said the directive is already in the statute there's no arguing that because it's right there if they're seeking protection they had to have done what congress wanted which was to block offensive content Yes, they're private, but it's still state authority. So this is where it gets interesting. So as I posed to you, I said, well, if they give, you know, if they ask somebody to take some content down and then they voluntarily choose to take that content down, who violated your constitutional rights? Was it the government? Was it big tech? Was it both? Or was it neither? Right? Well, the answer is either, and this is where it's a little confusing, it is either the government or it is the big tech company that followed the government's order. Either way, the common denominator there is that it was government. And uh, it was... Um, because because the company is acting as an agent of the government, right? Correct, because they're acting as an agent under agent authority. It is effectively commissioned power. 
That's what's so important about that administrative law or, or delegation of regulatory authority is because if they're seeking the protection, they had to have acted what, what Congress asked in the initial part, right? They said block and screen offensive materials. If you do it, you have C2A protection. If you don't do it, you can't be treated as the one who published the stuff. End of story. It's as simple as that. So if they so that's, acted... That's the catch-22 you've got them on. Is, what, exactly. Is they're either an agent or they aren't an agent. Right, but even if they are, aren't an agent, the request itself with the authority is still unconstitutional. Yeah. And what was brought up in um, – so the, I was supposed to go to oral arguments for the Ninth Circuit, and they vacated my oral arguments. But the same day, I was with um, Zach Voorhees. We were in a, a YouTube talk discussing the case, and there was one place that we disagreed. And during that oral arguments, uh, Chris Armenta was arguing it, and, and during those, those arguments, the judge said to Chris, even if you could make the leap – that this was a directive from Congress or, or whoever state authority it was. Why are you here suing? Uh, I think it was Google. Why are you here suing Google? And he said, oh, you know, and he hemmed and hawed. I said, no, they're right. Why are you suing Google? Why aren't you suing the government? Or at the very least, why aren't you? Why don't you have co-defendants? Why don't you sue them both together? Because then let the court sort it out. But one of these guys violated your constitutional rights, but sue them both. Which is, which but every is what the, which is what the state of, uh, attorneys general are doing, right? Effectively, they're, they're suing the executive branch. Yes, and and Google isn't it? Isn't it co-defendants? Um, which case is this? Is this Missouri versus Biden, or or is this another case? Correct. Yeah, Missouri versus Biden. So, so Missouri versus Biden. Biden is just the executive office. In fact, actually, the one case that is getting all of it, and let me explain people how, how this all worked. Because Facebook took my property and denied me of my liberties, and I was never given a single day in court at all, nothing, based on the regulatory code, which is Section 230, I took it all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, if the government denies you of life, liberty, or property under the authority of statute, regulation, whatever it is, if you're denied all remedy, what are you entitled to? It's a violation of due process. Essentially, I had to lose to get Article 3 standing to go after the government itself. So a constitutional challenge, which we filed, I think it was April of last year, uh, we filed a 143-page comprehensive constitutional challenge of Section 230. It is in my... Uh, timeline there somewhere you can read the whole thing um it is incredibly comprehensive we we tore everything apart all the way down and it is a violation of the first amendment the fifth amendment it is a violation of the non-delegation doctrine major questions doctrine void for vagueness doctrine and, and what's called the substantial overbreath doctrine for chilling speech then there is also elements of um Canons of statutory construction. If it continues the way it is as applied, it's unconstitutional because if you simply can't treat them as a publisher with no measure of motive whatsoever and they can do anything they want, that's a violation of, of constitutional right. You can't do that. That's just – that's it's basically sovereign power like because they can't be held accountable for anything. That's what we've been dealing with. So this, this massive challenge isn't against Facebook anymore. We sued the government. We Technically, we're suing the law, but the U.S. government defends it. Now, this is what's interesting about this. This is your U.S. government, by the way. So the DOJ is currently suing 
Google, and of course the Fourth Circuit Court, because Henderson is in the Fourth Circuit Court, which got it right. They're of course not bringing in the Ninth Circuit. Surprise, surprise. But the same DOJ that's defending this case came in. They moved for motion to dismiss, which is not uncommon, and they said that I did not have Article Three standing because nothing that uh, Facebook did is traceable to the United States government. All right, you ready for me to walk you through this standing? It's, this is pretty simple. I sued Facebook for what Facebook did to me, hence why I have Fick versus Facebook. I sued them for tort claims. I did not sue them for constitutional claims initially. So when they violated my constitutional rights, and when I say they, I mean the courts, which is the United States government, because, because Facebook that, didn't because dismiss itself. Bingo. I had to literally lose to hammer home Article 3 standing. And obviously Facebook didn't write Section 230. So, you know, we, I don't know what these judges are going to do. I mean, like you, you understand, lawfare is a problem right now. These judges aren't – we don't know what he's going to do. But the reality is, is like this isn't super complicated, guys. We sued Facebook for Facebook stuff. We're now suing the government for denying me of my life, liberty, and property, which in this case is obviously liberty and property. Because I couldn't go after Facebook. They denied me that access, right? It's the insulation of the regulation, and, otherwise and known this, as a regulatory illegal taking. Is prosecuted in, in which court? Uh, the DDC court, Washington. Okay. And one of the things you're, you're skipping over is the nuance of the circuit court. So just for the audience, um, you know, maybe for many of you, it's obvious. Ninth Circuit is San Francisco. It's the Western states. So Ninth Circuit basically has as its constituency Silicon Valley. Fourth Circuit is uh, Richmond, and it's the mid-Atlantic states for the most part. Virginia, the Carolinas, uh, West Virginia, um, and uh, Maryland, right? Um, yeah. And fifth is where... Uh, a lot of this stuff is getting litigated, and the attorney general's lawsuit, I think, is handling in fifth. Fifth is New Orleans, and so that's that's uh, Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana, right? Yep. Yep. And that seems to be a lot more friendly to these cases. It it it's not, you know, you you were alluded indirectly, and I don't want to put you on the spot because you're in a legal battle. But um, for those of for the rest of us. The implication is that the Ninth Circuit is reflecting the interests of its geographic constituency, which is the West Coast and Silicon Valley. In other words, they have their thumb on the scale of justice. That is entire. I, I don't mind. I, at this point, I mean, they, they put me through five years of litigation. I have to go to the Supreme Court twice, having been correct since day one. It, you, I can't even tell you how annoying this is when you sit there and go, oh, Wow, and everybody's like, oh, I just came up with this new conclusion about the text. And it's like, no, we've been saying it since 2018. Like, we time timestamp date, we we blow past everybody in terms of the long the longevity of how long we've been fighting this. And I will also say, and I can't say who, but I am currently um, acting as an expert witness along with my attorney in um, one case, but I have two more that are major ones that are coming out that I'm going to be working with as, as essentially an expert um, with our attorneys because we have to reconfor like for example um well I, I i yeah you know what i can't go too far into that one yeah because they're, they're not set yet but they'll be public just stf <laughs> <You>. <laughs> exactly but the but the point <laughs> being is is that 
I have no issues lending my help and my time to anybody that wants to go after these, but you have to align your argument with the correct statutory language. And and you're saying that um, you know, that you're saying they were they were favorable or or friendly to this, uh, Doctor Malone. I I would actually not say that they're necessarily friendly. They're doing their job, like they're doing what should have been done in the first place, which is look at the pleadings themselves consider the actual statutory language and do the job instead of i mean realistically the ninth circuit court didn't come in there and rule they went in there and defended they literally defended facebook right. and that's the problem is is that they have their own position on this and and in truth and now well, and i want to also that's what we encountered um three of us as physicians sued to be um reinstated on twitter and we use the same arguments that Alex Berenson uses used successfully. And the Ninth right. Circuit just threw it out. Not only did they throw it out, but as you probably know, uh, California has an anti-slap. And so what we were presented with was Ninth Circuit basically said our claims were invalid, even though they were based on the same logic that Berenson's was. And that, therefore, we were subject to the anti-slap provisions of the state of California. And so we were looking at a million plus in legal fees, suddenly, the three of us, for just trying to get back on Facebook, I mean, on Twitter. And uh, we had to sign an agreement. This is why I was shocked that I was ever let back on Twitter. We were forced into a position where we were either going to have a million in liability or sign an agreement saying that we would never uh, seek reinstatement on Twitter. That, yeah, that see, was the, the position you were put into. They scared you into silence. That that literally just that solidified what I just said, and 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 I don't understand why they're doing it. I mean, well, I do and I don't. I I don't want to make you know assumptions there, but the reality is is that this it's an argument that if you know they're basically giving away free speech right now, and if they don't deal with it, you know. As we articulated in, in our uh, petition to the Supreme Court, this may be the only cognizable way to essentially restore our freedom, our, our constitutional rights, legitimately. Because I'm, I'm, I'm with you. We, we, we are um, on the edge of the knife right now. Uh, exactly. That, is, that has been the argument that's been made repeatedly, as I mentioned about Mr. Obama, that this behavior is necessary to quote preserve and protect democracy. That that is exactly true, and and that is the, the fear ninth, that I have right at the circuit, moment. That's that's why I keep saying, what is the remedy when it is unequivocal that you have collusion from the lowest level federal bureaucrat up to the POTUS to circumvent the First Amendment? There is no remedy other than impeachment, and except if the Supremes step in. That is exactly correct. There there is currently no remedy. The Ninth Circuit is a is a is a lost cause. You you probably will not get through it. Uh, in fact, they're fighting tooth and nail right at the moment on HB twenty. Um, I know a case that that is is currently trying to fight the HB twenty in Texas. And what do they do? They threw thirty six attorneys at venue change. Why? Because they want to drag the case back to the ninth. To the ninth. Yeah. And they are the desperate ninth, to ninth do it. Isn't just California. It's also Washington. That's exactly right. It's it's like a it's like huge. It's the biggest one there is. But I also want to dispel another myth why I have everybody here because I know some people in the back of their head are thinking, well, yeah, I've looked at the statute and it says 
C2A is not going to be any better because it says they can do anything otherwise objectionable. Now, if you consider that subjectively, right, that it can be anything they want, well, it, it actually is not as bad as you think. Um, and it's also not even the problem right now. And I'll explain both. So even if it was subjective, the question is, did they act as a good Samaritan? That would be discretionary. Of course, it does come back to the courts. And then it, it you have to ask yourself, was it in good faith as a good Samaritan? Now, if there's you know information from the government to shut down like the um, Hunter Biden laptop, that wasn't in the interest of public. That was to control an election. That was essentially to to boost Biden by hiding information. That can't be – there's no way to articulate that, that that was acting as a good Samaritan. Now, they could try, but discretionary? I mean, then you have to have a judge that's just flat bias, and you're going to have to appeal, et cetera. But let me also say this. A lot of people still think that that's the problem, otherwise objectionable. It's not, and I'll tell you why. The problem that I said about the language, a publisher versus the publisher – is key because C1 is the problem. And I'll prove it. In two and a half decades, right, two, 25 years, there was a study done uh, by an internet company. It was about a year and a half, two years ago. And in that study, it determined there was five out of 500 Section 230 cases, only 19 ever applied to C2. 19. And most likely those were situations where it was actually really bad content but think about it 481 cases were dismissed under c1 immunity and remember c1 is not immunity it only prevents them from being treated as someone else there they were not 481 defamatory cases where they were being treated as someone else or someone else's words they were publishing conduct all of those cases have to be overturned They've been literally creating bad precedents since day one. That's the hot. That's the hot mess you're talking about. That is why Justice Roberts was talking about the economic impact that it's going to have on the internet. So the question that I would have then for the Supreme Court is: Are we more interested in protecting the uh, the corporate interests of trillion dollar companies that basically run the world now, or are we more interested in protecting the interests of the public and applying the law as written? That's why this is such an important decision. And like you said, we had to give them a vehicle to fix it. If And, and I would uh, implore you, take the time to read my, my petition. It's the top post in my, my feed. It's not arguable. It's right there. It's in the language. All we're asking the court is if you, if you apply it as it's written, everything sorts itself out. That's it. That's all we need you to do. So it's very simple. Hey, court, give the word the effect. Use Good Samaritan has to be the motivation, and you can't give them so much power that they can take my property without so much as giving me a single day in court. Those are the three questions we're throwing at them. Pretty simple. And Jason, where do you stand? I know you and I have had these conversations, but but obviously we, this for the Twitter Spaces event here, we want to make sure that people understand where you're at. And I know you've got um, – you and I talked about uh, putting together some requests. Uh, I'm not totally following what you mean. Where do I stand in terms of? Well, yeah. Where do you stand with the case? Um, is the Supreme Court willing to hear this? <laughs> well, uh, well, if you pray, pray. If you just hope, <laughs> hope. Because uh, I could not have done any more than I've done. There, There is no possible way I could pull that off. I've had to go to the Supreme Court a full time. 
I now have to go. I'm now here a second time on the same case because I've got conflicting decisions. And, and Robert, you should consider this with your attorneys, uh, something called a motion 60B. Because you will have a limited time window in which to act. If the Supreme Court renders a decision that would essentially clear a path for you, it's what's called a change of law in a higher jurisdiction. The Supreme, or the, excuse me, the Ninth Circuit Court would have to follow it because the the change of law changed. But you have to do it quickly. You do not get to sit. Actually, Susan Prager, uh, same thing. Prager needs to be able to move quickly on that because it, it will require you, you know, you to file this probably within three months, right? You got about thirty, you know, a ninety day window. Um, but you know, if the Supreme Court handles this, I think our future is is bright. If it doesn't, I'm concerned because we're the only case that articulates this correctly, and we've given them the easy tools to fix it without going into super complicated arguments. Here it is: give this word effect and these two word effects, and all of a sudden everything starts to work again. At which point, then we can worry about the otherwise objectionable. But at that point, at least the you know ninety five percent of the problem has fixed itself overnight. You know, listen to what the DOJ is saying. Listen to what I mean. As we put in our in our um, our complaint, we said, you know, are you going to consider what the policy and purpose of the legislature is, or would it be better to listen to what the legislature's physically telling you in an amicus? This is what the policy and purpose of the legislature is. It, it's a crazy mess. But separate of that. Is if the Supreme Court doesn't want to hear this one, well, declaratory constitutional challenge is something they're going to kind of have to sort out. Now, I'm not going to go in. I, I don't think it's it's valuable to go into the unconstitutionality. C1 has to exist. Let me be clear because everybody's like, oh, you're just going to ruin the Internet. No. C1 has to exist, that they can't be treated as someone else, but it has to be applied correctly. So it's not super immunity. But once it's applied correctly – there's nothing unconstitutional about it when it's applied correctly. It's not currently. Then C2A is unconstitutional because it expressly uh, allows them to restrict uh, lawful content content under the authority of government, and they can't do that. It's under the non-delegation, as you said, Robert. The um, that's the hot topic with OSHA and and I mean the Supreme Court has been yeah, and this is even inclined us because... to flip them. Because here we have a delegation to a, a corporate entity, not to a private, to, to a public administrative uh, agency. Let, let's call them for what they are. They are a private agency commission. They're not acting on the behalf of the state at a directive, like from an outside source, but they are acting under commission power as an agent of government. If they seek yep. the protection, they had to have done what the government asked them to do. Yep. It starts to clean it up. Well, I need to sign off. This has been fascinating, Jason. Thank you so much for the coaching. Um, I feel uh, much smarter now than I was uh, an hour ago. Yeah, I'd Thanks hope to connect with you outside of here too, Dr. Malone. Uh, I, I know Laura will, will talk to us, yeah, but we'll uh, make, there's a lot we'll more – to guide those that really want to go after, you know, the liability. Cause this is about, I believe it's about the change. Let's just hope, but thank you. Well, it's critical. It's critical for the future of this country. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Malone. Um, appreciate it as always. And, uh, we'll connect you Jason with Dr. Malone, but okay. If you have a few more minutes, Jason, I know when we first got on, 
you had said that this could have implications on SBB, the Silicon Valley banking issue that just came up. I don't think it has, it doesn't, I don't believe it has implications on it, but it may have something to do with it because now you're talking Silicon Valley. It's, you've seen the Silicon Valley bank dropping out, right? And they're, Mm -hmm. they're going out. Um, the yep. government prevented it being from being bought from a private user, so or a private uh, owner, and you also see uh, Facebook's laying off ten thousand people. You know, we we know that there's right. leaks in the United States Supreme Court. Clerks may be saying, "Hey, look, we got a problem. I think they're going to fix this." Well, what would you do? You know, um, a lot of people don't know that when I was filing the constitutional challenge. Um, just so coincidentally, as I'm filing a constitutional challenge, which flat out makes them deal with the law and its constitutionality, Facebook just happened to change its name to Meta. What would you do if, if your company was about to to deal with an absolute just overwhelming tidal wave of litigation and liability because they've never seen any yet? It's They've essentially gotten away with everything. Well, wouldn't it make sense to move your digital assets and transfer to a different company? And I mean – it was kind of strange that they did that so so fast that they infringed on trademarks, and, and it just seemed like a pan- and, and they never gave a real good reason why. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Arm's length. And lastly, uh, another friend of mine who follows um, stock purchases and salt and uh, sales from congressional members, because of course we know what that means. If congressional members are dumping stock, right. you know what it means. It means whatever that is is going to like tank. Well, sure enough, she texted me this morning. She said, uh, you know that the congressional members are dumping tech stock. And I was like, no. So she sent me a link, and sure enough, they are dumping yeah. tech stock in, in quick order. And it's like, hmm, if I was a congressional member and I knew that the Supreme Court was about to fix this monster, uh-oh, let's get out of them. I can't yeah, say I'm- for sure, but it is awfully coincidental. Yeah, I have a friend that's in the finance industry. Um, I can't. Some of the information is somewhat confidential, but uh, it was pretty shocking, the details around the, the SVB situation. And of course, I mean, we're talking about banks um, that are obviously deep in, in the tech industry. So there's clearly some correlation that's happening here. Um, I've just added a few more people as speakers, and uh, we have probably another five minutes um, before I need to wrap this up. And it looks like React 19 has their hand up. So go for it. Just jump in. Hey, this is silence. So it wasn't the first time I was suspended, but this was a um, a permanent one for, uh, of course, again, I'm vaccine injured. We, we had a small closed Facebook group of vaccine injured. Um, and then there was a press conference that was held with Senator Johnson this was the summer of 2021. And right after the press conference, like the next day, this Facebook group was taken down. I can't even recall if we had posted anything in the Facebook group yet. But it was taken down permanently without a right of an appeal. And I mean, I was always, I was just shocked over that happening. Um and it just seems to me, and I'm going to ha- maybe have to go do some FOIAs now, but the only way Facebook, I would think, would have even known about it is if 
uh, somehow there was the government itself had directed um, them to take it down. Well, I think at this point, it's clear that um, that, that, that in fact was happening across um, a lot of the social media platforms. And it doesn't surprise me. Um, they have a very vested interest to make sure that, that you are silenced because they can't have uh, information about the horrific vaccine injury and the volume of vaccine injury that we're starting to see. Jason, I know you probably have some well, thoughts on that. Yeah. So, so there's another point of that too, is, is that, so for example, if you brought litigation and, and I want to be clear too, is, is that just because they would lose section 230 does not mean that they cannot remove your content. I want to be clear about that. They still have the ability to do it and they would generally not be held liable because again, if you bring litigation, there has to be a cause of action and there has to be damages. So the question is, was there any damages and so forth, you know, as you're rolling in there? Because like, for example, a kitty cat site could just ban dogs and there's nothing unlawful about that. But it's when they break the law is the problem because Section 230 is allowing them to break other laws. In your case, Silence, you know, obviously, you know, we have to get past. Let's just say we get past the cause of action issue, like that there is, in fact, some way that they did act nefariously. Right. And your allegation says, well. The, these companies were, were um, told to do so by the government. Do you know if they were? The only way to prove that is how? Discovery. So if your allegation is, is that the government told them to do it, the case, your case should not be dismissed because it's inappropriate to dismiss it pre-discovery. It means that it shouldn't have been dismissed in the first place. You actually have to go into a fact-finding mission to find out. Now, that sucks for them, but that's actually the way the law is supposed to work. You know? Did, did um, you have an actual case, or um, a legal case, or did you just petition it with Facebook? Just for point of clarification. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had, we were going to, but we were all just too sick at the time. But we couldn't even petition to Facebook because there was you know often they'll allow you to appeal to facebook and they won't allow, there wasn't even an appeal in this case but but there were problem was there potentially and thank god it didn't happen but there were several women on there because this was mostly women and it was a, it was a small group but um they were on the verge of suicide and we were panicked because we had lost touch with them for quite some time so Anyway, as it turned out, you know, we were able to reconnect on Telegram at the time. But, yeah, it was a pretty awful situation. And, and to add to that real quick, I, I want to be clear. I do not have a bar license. And you don't need to have a bar license to understand law. You just need to read it and follow it, right? And I am not in any way giving you legal advice. However, I can give you my opinion. And in this circumstance, if you were ever to – you or anyone you know – wants to bring a case over vaccine injuries, I would not just sue the big tech company. Sue the government as well as co-defendants. Find out sure. whether or not that, that uh, connection exists and then let the sorts, you know, the courts sort out are, are they an agent? Are they not an agent? Was it government authority? Was it not? But reality is, is you have both possibility for both defendants and they can make the argument however they want. That's how I would approach yeah. it. Yeah, and Jason, I know you and I spoke about the fact that I want to pick your brain as it, re it relates to uh, the PrEP Act 
because I'm such a believer that this is probably the single piece of legislation that has allowed us to get to where we are, at least from um, the emergency use authorization standpoint and unrolling uh, or rolling out, I should say, of the vaccines to the American people under an EUA because there's so many factors, um, so many red flags, but yet the uh, PREP Act, I think, has been this, this piece of legislation that has given such total immunity to not only um, the government and the pharmaceutical companies, but really anyone involved um, to school sites and vaccine van administrators and so on. Yeah, it, it's definitely something that uh, I need to take a look into it at, at some point when I'm getting freed up here. Um, would you mind, though, if we uh, if I mention uh, our website and uh, the event that we have coming up? Please do. I actually would thank you for reminding me. That was one of the things that we wanted to get to. <laughs> so um, I, I am actually the founder of the Social Media Freedom Foundation. Uh, it is a 501c3 organization. Um, it is, uh, you can find it at socialmediafreedom.org. Uh, again, that's socialmediafreedom.org. And, you know, I, I know a lot of the information that just popped up, um, you know, is a, it's a lot to take in. Uh, I mean, an incredible lot. We have a ton of information. I have written probably three to 4,000 uh, you know, pages of stuff on there. Uh, matter of fact, actually, my web guy, Alec, is in the room. He's volunteered his time, and he put together a heck of a site for us. I, I really appreciate that. Um, and I, I will say this, is that there are, there's three articles on our homepage which explain the, the three main points, which is uh, how there's, there's a conflict going on, what the state action, you know, derives from, and, and also the main fix, which is the C1 fix. I, I'd invite you to go there and take a look at it. And, and also, donations are tax deductible we need your support i'm not out here clout chasing i am simply trying to accomplish a job and and i know a few of the people in this room know me i, I have put everything i have into this use my own money you know essentially i'm trying to fix this for everybody i think we have a shot at it uh, if the supreme court does this it could change the world i mean it literally could be you know on the level of brown versus board of education it could change the internet so Hopefully that. Um, but another a good announcement, and I, I think I can make this announcement. Um, Laura and I have clicked, uh, thanks to Susan, putting us together. And uh, the Unity Project is going to be involved with us and Social Media Freedom Foundation and ALX Events. We are putting on the Internet Equality Summit uh, in Orange County, California, uh, May 11th and 12th. Uh, Susan, uh, Susan Prager's husband, Dennis Prager, is our keynote speaker. Uh, on the 11th, and uh, it's actually pretty exciting because he's agreed. I mean, talk talk about cool. He's agreed to have a live debate with the executive editor of Occupy Democrats. That's like right. never happened. I mean, that is going to be right. such a cool debate. And again, it, it is a nonpartisan event. Um, looking forward to it. We're going to have some great speakers there to talk about internet equality, uh, kind of on their home turf out there in California. Right. And I believe, Doctor, we have to work out the, the details, but it looks like Dr. Robert Malone will also be uh, possibly speaking as well. I think on the 11th, we have to work out the details. But, you know, I encourage everyone to follow the work that Jason is doing. This is critically important. I think we can all agree that uh, there's a lot of atrocities that have been committed, a lot of crimes against humanity that have happened in the last three years. Um, and I think this has been something that's been in the making for quite some time. I don't think that uh, this started with, with COVID. This is clearly, there's a lot that, that has led up to this point. 
but the mechanism or the vehicle that has been used is the censorship. If the American people were given the truth, were given the opportunity to share their stories and to hear, um, again, as it relates to COVID in particular, to hear what has happened, to get the true information about uh, the pharmaceutical companies and the crimes that have been perpetrated on the American people, we would not be in the situation that we're in. I'll, I'll tell a story that, that I've told before. You know, at the Unity Project, we actually posted an um, excerpt from a bill that was taken directly off of the California.gov website. And it was literally a cut and paste language out of a bill. And we were told that we were going to be permanently banned from, from this, uh, it was Instagram, uh, for misinformation and disinformation. We fought it. We're obviously still on Instagram. Um, but, but the point being is one of the things that occurred to me very early on is that we wouldn't have what's going on in this country if people actually understood. And, you know, there's a lot of bad bills across the country. California happens to be the tip of the spear when it comes to bad legislation. And uh, I actually got to speak at an event, and it's an event that had a, um, a political affiliation, although I want to be very clear, much like what Jason was saying, especially about this event that's happening on May 11th and 12th, we are not, we are not a partisan organization. It really doesn't matter where you fall in the political spectrum. I think we can all agree that what's happened in the last three years it has been horrific. Um, Although the media will tend to tie it to a political party, it really isn't a political issue. So uh, in any event, I'm speaking at this event. There were some folks there that were uh, deep in the political arena. And I asked out of 400 people, just by show of hands, who was aware of the legislation or the bills that were deep in the legislative process, less than four people in the room raised their hand, uh, which, which proved to me yet again that the, the media companies, the social media, the censorship that has been occurring for so long has been incredibly effective. So for everyone that's listening, I, I ask you to follow the work that Jason is doing, follow the work that the Unity Project is doing. Uh, we're both organizations that are going to be partnering together to stop what's happening and to change the trajectory of what's, what's happened in the last, really, uh, I always say the last three years, Jason, but I venture to say it's probably the last four decades things have been happening. Yeah. Yeah, this was not by accident. Uh, Much of it was set up. And, I mean, they've got all the, like, the Smith uh, Modernization Act. I mean, there's there's lots of reasons why this thing is getting uh, out of hand. And we're just hoping that the Supreme Court puts a stop to it. Um, Before we go, uh, Susan, are you interested in, I know you're up here as a speaker. Did you want to say something before we go? I just wanted to point out a couple of things that I don't think we're pointed out specifically in the discussion of the legislation itself, the Section 230 legislation. Okay. Um, you guys were talking about Good Samaritan and that that, that was the, um, the principle behind the law and that it was about screening of offensive or I think the other word that kept coming up was objectionable material. But the... This is not that difficult, and I don't know why the courts ever thought that it was, because the law itself is very specific about the type of material. It's giving this protection to platforms for censoring. It's listed in the statute, obscene, lewd, lascivious, 
filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. And I think Ted Cruz's group nailed it in their amicus brief when they said, you can't say otherwise objectionable applies to anything else like misinformation about vaccines or treatments for COVID or some political statement that somebody makes that somebody finds that, that a platform finds objectionable. They said in their amicus, uh, under standard canons of interpretation, the otherwise objectionable language refers only to material in the same league as the terms preceding it. And all of what has been censored on social media, virtually all of it, your case against Facebook, what happened to the Unity Project and Dr. Malone, medical misinformation, COVID misinformation, none of that falls into the same category as what's in the Section 230 statute. You're 100% correct. And I should, uh, I should sort of clarify, when I was saying about applying otherwise objectionable subjectively or objectively, subjectively is whatever they choose, objectively is the only way that it could even come close to being constitutionally sufficient because it's closer to unlawful content that the, the government can take down. But obviously the next line says, even if that material is constitutionally protected. So that's part of our argument. You, you, you were good to point that out. It is part of our constitutional argument with 230C2A because you just can't do that. Um, the, the government can't, doesn't have the power to exercise, to restrict you know, uh, lawful materials. So it definitely can't be subjective. It has to be at least objective. And even in that circumstance, it may still not be considered under constitutional scrutiny. So you're absolutely right for pointing that out. Hey, Susan, good to, good to talk to you. I'm glad you were able to join. And thanks for connecting us with Jason. It's been amazing. Oh, you're uh, so welcome. I hope it benefits I, everybody. I'm sure it will. It and can, like I, can I add one other quick yeah. thing? Sorry. Sorry, mm -hmm. yeah, it just totally it. popped in my head. Because Susan, you were always the one that brought it up to me. Even the findings, the purpose. Yes, nobody reads the, the findings. Right, it, they're in it, the statute it, itself. Nobody has to guess. They're there. They're yeah. in the statute. And just to clarify for those that have not read this, it literally says that Section Two Thirty was to facilitate free speech and to mm -hmm. protect political discourse. Right. I mean, that's, it's what? in the statute. All this statute intended to do was allow platforms to censor out things that you wouldn't want children to see, like pornography, even if that pornography is legal and constitutionally protected. They wanted the platforms to still be able to censor it out without be themselves being uh, held to be a publisher and therefore liable for everything else that goes up on their platform put there by third parties. That is 100% well, correct. And absolutely no, no true. Doubt, no doubt the um, the current regime, let's just label them that. And again, I don't think that we should. They have a very vested interest to make sure that they censor what we're saying, because there's so much that's happening right now, whether it's perverting the language or pushing genital mutilation of children or um, stifling the truth about COVID-19, whether it's the origins or the dangers of the vaccine. So it's, it's very clear um, that 
they are going to fight very hard to continue censoring. Well, as Jason pointed out, they may have a right to do that under the First Amendment, but they don't have a right to be protected from liability under Section 230 for doing that. That's right. Correct. They can do it, but it doesn't mean that they get protection for liability when they do it. Right. Well, I'm... Jason, I'm excited to have met you. Susan, thanks for facilitating this because it gives me hope. I do. Um, I, again, this, this, this to me is just hopeful because we need this in order to continue as a country. Uh, I don't see how, much like Dr. Malone was saying, we're on the knife's edge right now. And I don't see how we move forward unless um, this lawsuit is successful. Um, Correct. We, we really are. Freedom of speech is everything. That's right. We really are on the cusp of of a dire situation in this country. And um, sadly, it's been it's been in the works for quite some time. So Jason, I, you know, we're going to work together. We're going to do what we can to help promote this and and, uh, push this forward to the extent, obviously, that we um, the Supreme Court needs to hear this. This is probably the one of the most important cases that they can possibly hear at this point. It, it may be the most at this point. Mm-hmm. Yep. In I, our I appreciate that. Yeah, a lot of people are not grasping the magnitude because if, you know, no matter what your personal issue be, whether it be election integrity or, or the border, whatever it is, if no one can organize because they can't say anything online, right. we can't resolve anything in this nation anymore. Nothing. So right. it all you know, is dependent you know upon free speech of California, online. California now has um, regulations that children that are in high school, if you quote unquote misgender someone, you can actually be suspended from high school. And see, that's thing. insane. And, and how do you thing. stop that? Public outrage. How do you get to mm-hmm. the public? Through social media. That, that, that's the concern here is that if we don't open this up, you know, and and restore some freedoms online and, and protect uh, speech online, you know, we're going to lose this country. Like, that's not a joke. And that's why I agree with you, Susan. This is probably, and I, I mean, I'm not just saying it because it's my case. That's why I've continued to fight it so hard, because it may be the most important case in America, period, ever. I would also like to just put in a plug for everybody listening. Anything that you can do to help Jason, even if it's sending him just $5, if enough people do that, it'll cover what's going on. He has been a lone fighter fighting this battle entirely on his own for the last six years at his own expense. But he's fighting it on behalf of all of us. Mm -hmm. And we all have a stake in whether he wins it or not. Because if he loses, we all lose. And not only that, but even if you can't, you know, afford to even drop a a, a dollar to the Social Media Freedom Foundation, even if that share my pinned post costs you nothing, just retweet it. That's it. Why? Because the more people that see it, the more people that are educated and the more people that are educated, the more pressure it puts on the courts to fix the damn thing. We've got a solution. We know how to do it. We just got to get them to do it. And thank you, Susan. I really appreciate those words. Jason, uh, Laura, I put the um, socialmediafreedom.org up in the nest is, um, as well as the Unity Project. So they're up in the nest. Great. Please, Thank guys, you. 
those and fire um be sure to follow the speakers here right. and tend to help the unity yeah. project jason and, and i I appreciate that. And, you know, oftentimes we think about, casually think about our right to freedom of speech and everything that comes with the First Amendment, our right to assemble, freedom of press, all of it that goes along with it. And we do it in a very casual way, but I would ask that people think about it, really stop and think about the implications. Um, and, And I will relate it to what's specifically to the vaccine injured in the last three years. We have a group of people, thousands, hundreds of thousands, I would venture to say potentially a million, if not more, globally, that have now been vaccine injured. Their inability to communicate with one another, to have their their stories heard, to communicate with their medical professionals and their governments and the pharmaceutical industry has led to dire consequences in, in many ways. It's led to the fact that we're still promoting the vaccines, which have been um, slaughtering children, uh, have been severely uh, debilitating children. And in addition to that, we now have a cohort of, of human beings across the globe that are vaccine injured. And because there's no ability for them to speak and to communicate this effectively to their medical professionals, they have no uh, medical intervention pathway. Right. That's just one small, minute aspect, um, but it's a tangible w- representation of how this is impacted in the immediate um, term. What we're living today, I could we, again, we could probably go we could do a 20, a, you know, 24 hour uh, Twitter spaces and dissect every aspect of, of how this is damaging society. But something that is on the tip of our mind because we just we, we've been living it for the last two and a half, almost three years now. Um, is, is COVID. And I would say this to me is a really tangible example. So think long and hard about how critically important this particular issue is. Uh, with that, Jason, do you have anything or Susan or, or any of the other speakers, do you guys have anything else before we close it out? And I'm so grateful for, for your time this evening. Uh, no, I, I really, really am grateful, uh, Laura, to, to have me on tonight. And I hope I, uh, I gave somebody, you know, some people here some really good information. Um, you know, feel free. Uh, I, I keep my DMs open, and I, I look at the, uh, the the extra ones. I forget what they're called, but occasionally, if if people are trying to understand how to to go after social media, I'd be happy to lend anybody information on this. I do have, absolutely can. I pretty much work around the clock. Um, the only other thing is, I forgot to mention the website. Um, for the Internet Equality Summit, if you can get to California May 11th and 12th, it's IES23.com. Again, it's IES for 2023, so it's 23.com. Um, and Susan, thanks for introducing me to Laura. This is, uh, you know, you guys are the best. I appreciate everything you guys do. Yes. Well, it was my pleasure. I'm very grateful that it's going to be a good partnership. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited, and and I'm grateful for the work that that you and, and Dennis are doing. It's it's vital. Um, I think that we have. I don't know if uh, Dr. Christine Shackleford, uh, uh, sorry, Chrisana, I listed you to speak. It sounds like you had a question. If you can jump on, um, we'll we'll keep this going for just a second, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. For those of you that want information about the summit that'll be happening on May 11th and 12th. Um, and I encourage everyone to check it out. It's going to be an amazing event. 
uh, I'm, I personally am looking really, I'm really looking forward to the debate, um, between Dennis and, um, uh, I'm sorry, his name is escaping me. Who is his name is, uh, Grant Stern. He's the executive editor of, uh, Occupy Democrats. Yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. I think that's something that's, it's a long time coming. We need to start having more open conversations like this. Uh, but but you can find information. Unity Project will be posting about it shortly on our website, so feel free to go there. Um, Jason, how do they how do they access uh, information on your site? Uh, well, it's up in the nest right at the moment. Socialmediafreedom.org. Um, there is all sorts of stuff on there. Uh, we have all the documentation of all the litigation. We have. I have op-eds that I've written for like the Federalists and Gateway and uh, Human Events. I've, I've got all sorts of information that's up there. Um, and I would say, I want to laugh about one thing. So I, I got to give Grant Stern, you know, credit. He's going to stand up in a tough position to, to argue with, to debate uh, Dennis. But we made the offer to Jess Myers and Eric Goldman, who are supposedly the preeminent or so-called Section 230 experts, and they both declined. They said, oh, well, they don't want their brand anywhere near me. Wait, what? I'm not a lawyer. You guys should be able to smoke me, right? Right. Yeah, they, they couldn't stand a chance, you know? Well, it just goes to show you how illiberal our so-called liberals have become, that they're unwilling to have a debate with somebody who has an opposing view. Right. Absolutely. Right, Absolutely. and if they're confident in their, in their position, they should – not only should they – feel comfortable but they should be excited about the opportunity they should be motivated by that opportunity yes these guys are representative of the adversarial process mm -hmm. but i think it shows that a lot of people on that side of the political spectrum are no longer interested in an adversarial process they're interested in shutting up their opponents right it's their way or no way sure uh, well i, I accepted the I'm sorry. I, I accepted the doctor's uh, request. I don't. She should okay. be connecting here. Okay. Well, let's see. If so, if she can, great. If not, um, maybe she can send. Looks like she's connecting. All right. Um, Excellent. But, but but you're right, Susan and and Jason. It's it's it actually never ceases to amaze me. But it does seem very transparent that even like if you look at what's happened as it relates to the vaccines. You know, how many times have, have the, has the Unity Project or I, I know Dennis Prager have invited folks to have the conversation, right? I would be willing to debate Dr. Fauci. I am not a doctor. I would be willing to debate Dr. Fauci. I guarantee he would never come on the Unity Project and have that conversation. Co common sense is very tough to fight. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... I mean, because that—that's really what my argument is to the lawyer. It's like, look, it's—it says the publisher. Why is everybody saying a publisher? That's not what it says. You know, it's common sense. That's right. Like you know, English. You know, the language that it's written in—it's—it's it's terrible. It is. It's terrible. I don't know. It doesn't seem to be connecting correctly. All right. Well, um, well, what I would say is, um, she can maybe email. Oh, let's see. I'll try one more time here. Add a speaker. Let's see if she's. I, I I've actually spoken to her in the past. She's fantastic. She's actually doing a lot of work around um, what's happened in the military and their forced vaccines, uh, which is obviously um, different than the general public. Because once you're part of the military, 
um, the military and I'm, I'm somewhat joking. The military kind of owns you. So their um, ability to decline a vaccine is different than, than the ability for the general public. That being said, the military should, does not have the right to engage in medical experimentation on military personnel. Yeah. They, they do lose some of the rights when they enter into the military. It's a little bit different, but, uh, but still, and, and like I said, um, if anybody, you know, pursues litigation and they hit this firewall, feel free to reach out to me. Um, as I said, I, I'm consulting on other cases that are that are coming that are some pretty big ones. I, I can't say who yet, but the same thing here is, is that I, I can, you know, even with when uh, Dr. Malone was playing devil's advocate, uh, another gentleman uh, that is in this room pointed out, and, and you have to realize, I am trying to regurgitate two and a half years or excuse me, two and a half decades worth of screw-ups, right? All the bad precedent. About six years of litigation process all in an hour and a half. I'm going to miss stuff. There's there's way more to this, right? I could sit here and talk for hours upon hours upon hours because it's just there's so many mistakes that were made. Right. We I had to sort them all out. So right. well, anyhow. And I know there was, I mean, yeah, we, we could probably go keep going for hours to your point, Jason. I know there were some questions, um, but I think you did a pretty comprehensive job. And again, I'm grateful to know you. I'm grateful for the work that you have been doing, the fight that you have been in. Um, it's, you are, you are a um, tireless, I think, warrior in this that have, you know, has, have not been public, but has been so vital to the safety of our constitution are very, very fundamental. God, I, I see them as, as God-given rights, natural rights. They should be. <laughs> or, or as I say, our constitutional rights don't end where the internet begins. That's right. That should be all the way across. It should be un, under any circumstance. And the court should be concerned about the interests of the public, not corporate gain. Uh, it just, it bugs me, you know? Yeah, I mean, everybody wonders why they're so big because well, they've never been held accountable for anything, literally anything. Right. Well, not to open up, you know, go down a, a rabbit hole on something. I'll just, I'll just maybe close out on this topic, which is, I think it's more than corporate gain. I think it's clear that there is a darker, more nefarious agenda, and um, we've seen it in the case of COVID. We've seen the the. This is clearly more than pharmaceutical profit um here i'm gonna add susan is a speaker she just dropped off um this has clearly got more to do with part with than you know pharmaceutical companies profiting and um so there's definitely yeah, it, something that, that's larger at play than just a profit model it's a government weapon i mean mm -hmm. let, let's let's just be you know <laughs> clear about it it's a government weapon they don't want to give it up the question is, can we force them to? Because, I mean, it's really us against them and them being the entire government as opposed to we, the people right. that want to be free and, and have our rights. And let's be clear. If our First Amendment falls, we have nothing left in this country. Absolutely. Right. It's done. All right. Um Okay, my, my team is texting me saying that she was having, she's having a hard time. So I, I apologize, Dr. Shackelford. I know uh, when we were on here last time, you were a great contributor. So um, if you want to text us or email us a question, we can put you directly in touch with, with Jason. Um, 
maybe that's a better, better way to handle this. So, all right. Well, thank you everyone for joining Jason. You're amazing. Susan, I'm incredibly grateful for you making this connection and grateful for all the work that you guys are doing. Thank you to all the speakers. Um, keep up, keep up, uh, staying in this fight and, uh, everyone have a fantastic evening. From all of us at the unity project. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope to continue producing content that amplifies voices, strategies, and resources. Please keep in mind that the Unity Project is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that relies on the contributions of our generous supporters to fuel the work we do in this movement. If you value our efforts, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution today by visiting our website at www.unityproject.com and clicking the donate button. We very much appreciate your continued support and confidence, without which our work wouldn't be possible.